0: Uh, Well, friends, uh, in 2010, a book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven became a bestseller. The book traces the story of six-year-old Alex Malaki, who was involved in a serious car accident that tragically left him a quadriplegic. However, when he regained consciousness, uh, what he claimed was that uh, he had died and he had he had been taken to heaven by an angel where he was able to see God for himself before uh, returning uh, to life and living to tell the tale. Uh, Soon the story was picked up by Christian publishers and turned into a best-selling book that sold hundreds and thousands of copies. In fact, uh, this was one of of a series of books that were beginning to be published around this time creating a new genre of literature called Heaven Tourism. A popular movie about Alex's story was also released uh, not too long afterwards. Unfortunately, a few years after this book was released, Alex Malaki confessed that everything was a fraud. He had made everything up. In a letter to the publishers, he wrote, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. Uh, Soon the book was taken from the shelves and there was a great deal of embarrassment for all involved. Now, I I don't know what you think about stories like this, but from the number of books uh, sold and, and movies watched about these sort of things, it does show, doesn't it, that people are fascinated with the idea of seeing God We want to know what it's like to see God for ourselves. We want to have that experience. We want to gaze upon God with our our own eyes so that we can know God is real. Is it possible to see God? Can you say that you have seen God in your life? Well, um, as you know, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus for the last little while. And uh, if you remember, the last few chapters have been about uh, the law of God, which he gives to the nation of Israel so that uh, they might know what it looks like to be his holy people. However, however, today we come to uh, this remarkable passage where we are told that Moses and uh, some priests and some representatives of Israel actually see the God of Israel and live to tell the tale. Now, uh, you can see the invitation uh, to come and see God and to worship him uh, that that God uh, offers to Moses and um, Aaron uh, together with his two eldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, um, and I think they represent the priesthood, um, as well as 70 elders represent the totality of the people of Israel. Uh, the number 70 in the Bible usually represents the total number of something. Um, and so, for example, in Genesis 10, uh, you see the 70 nations that are mentioned, which is meant to represent the total number of nations in the world. And so the 70 elders uh, is speaking about uh, the, 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 uh, the, the total nation of Israel or is meant to represent the total uh, nation of Israel. However, notice here that Mount Sinai is again divided into three zones. Uh, We've seen this uh, idea before in uh, chapter 19 on the day of the assembly, haven't we? Uh, That is, uh, the people of Israel are to remain at the base of the mountain. Uh, The priests and elders are allowed to come up uh, a little bit further up the mountain. And only Moses is allowed to draw near to God at the top of the mountain. Uh, A few weeks ago, I used the illustration of a nuclear reactor. Uh, Just as you can't approach the core of the nuclear reactor without the right authorization or credentials, the message here is that you you can't simply approach the holy and glorious and majestic God without the right authorization and simply come on your own terms. For the unholy cannot expect to gaze upon this God and expect to come out alive, you see. And that's why later in Exodus 33, verse 20, God says to Moses these words. He says, you you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. However, the extraordinary thing here is that when Moses and the priests and the elders go up the mountain to to worship him, we are told that they see God and furthermore, they live to tell the tale. Uh, You can see it there further down the passage in verse 9, which is uh, where they respond to God's invitation and they make their way up the mountain. Uh, It says there in verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron... Uh, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, what exactly is it that these people saw when they got up the mountain. Well, we are not told here that they saw God's physical appearance. Uh, When we read the whole Bible, uh, we can piece together that God actually does not have a physical form. He is invisible. He is spirit. And so when the Bible mentions God's face or God's feet or God's right hand, for example, Uh, we are not meant to understand them as describing the physical features of God. Rather, they are metaphors that help us understand something real about what God is like. But here, it seems as though Moses and his entourage are seeing something of the glory of God rather than looking at him directly. Uh, The sapphire stone uh, is a blue stone Uh, You can see it there on your screens. And so the clear pavement of sapphire stone in this passage uh, is meant to represent the sky. It's almost as though uh, they can see beyond the clear blue sky and they catch a small glimpse of just how glorious and majestic and holy God really is, even though the most they can see is, is God's feet, metaphorically speaking. However, the extraordinary thing here is that they are able to see something of God and still live to tell the tale. Now, that's why Moses, who writes Exodus, almost expresses surprise when he says in verse 11 that God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. I mean, from all we have seen, you would expect the holy and righteous and majestic God to simply consume unholy sinners who. Uh, come near to him. But here they live to tell the tale. But here's the thing, friends. Not only do Moses and the priests and the elders of Israel live to tell the tale of seeing God, but they are able to feast with God, eating and drinking in his presence. Now we're told in verse 11 that they beheld God and they ate and drank. In other words, uh, this is a wonderful picture of friendship and fellowship isn't it you eat and drink with those whom you are friends with that's why we've missed so much not being able to go to cafes and restaurants and to have people over at our houses for meals because to eat and drink with someone it is to express a deep friendship and a fellowship and a unity with that person But friends, here is God's intention for the people that he has created and redeemed. God is a God who wants to be in friendship and fellowship with us. He wants us to eat and drink in his presence, enjoying his goodness and kindness and abundance. What a wonderful picture we have here of God's plan and intention and desire for his people in this world as we uh, see this image of feasting on Mount Sinai. But friends, uh, how do these people see God and live to tell the tale? Well, the answer uh, to that question is given in verses 3 to 8, where God formally enters into a covenant relationship with his people. Uh, you can see in these verses, God formalizing the covenant uh, with a ceremony, a bit like you would formalize a marriage with a with a wedding ceremony. But what is involved in this ceremony? Uh, well, firstly, there is a sacrifice. There is a sacrifice. Uh, you, now you can see there in verse four that, Moses sets up an altar at the foot of the mountain as well as 12 pillars. Uh, what's going on here? Well, these things represent the two parties that are that are about to enter into the covenant relationship. The altar represents God as one party and the 12 pillars represents Israel as the other party. Further, you can see there in verse 5 that Two animal sacrifices are made. One is described as a burnt offering and the other is described as a peace offering. Now, uh, we aren't given a lot of explanation about the significance of these sacrifices uh, in the passage itself, but in Leviticus chapter 1, for example, we see that burnt offerings were made to atone for human sin. In other words, you would make a burnt offering. in in order to remove your sin from you so that God's wrath would be averted away from you, uh, clearing the way for fellowship with God to happen. On the other hand, the peace offering was a celebration of the fellowship that you now enjoyed with God through the first sacrifice. Uh, After this peace offering was made, uh, the people of Israel Uh, would then enjoy a barbecue with the slaughtered animal in God's presence as a sign of fellowship with God himself. And so it's likely that uh, this sacrifice provided the the meat that was consumed by Moses and the priests and their elders uh, on top of the mountain. But here's the the strange thing. Uh, Notice that after these sacrifices, you have this strange ceremony where Moses splashes half the blood of the sacrifices on the altar of God and splashes the other half of the blood on the people of Israel themselves. They, they literally have a, a bloodbath together. Now what is going on here? Well, there's been a lot of ink uh, spilt over what this strange ceremony might symbolise. Um, could it be uh, that it symbolises Israel being a, a royal priesthood, for example. Uh, later on in Exodus, you, you actually see uh, the priests uh, are dabbed with uh, little bits of blood uh, in their ordination. But that doesn't really explain why the altar uh, also needs to be splashed with blood or the copious amounts of blood that are, that are used here. Could it symbolise God and the people of Israel being bound together as one? You know, uh, we still use the expression that we are uh, of one blood, don't we, when we speak of being part of the same family and united in that way. Uh, Is is it talking about the blood uh, in that sense? Now, uh, friends, it could mean any of those things. But uh, I think what this ceremony is meant to symbolise is that if either party breaks the terms of the covenant, then they will die just like this dead animal whose blood is splashed everywhere. Uh, Why do I think that? Well, uh, you might remember that when God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abraham is told to cut up uh, a number of different animals in half and uh, he he, he lays them down uh, on the ground so that Abraham and God can walk down the middle of these carcasses. In other words, it was a solemn reminder that the one who breaks the covenant will be dead meat, just like these animals. I think a similar thing is going on here. However, this blood was also a reminder for the people of Israel that a life had been taken And its blood had been shed in order to bring them into a covenant relationship with God Himself. In other words, uh, this was not just a warning, but it was a wonderful reminder of God's love and kindness and mercy to them through this sacrifice. And that's why in verse 8, the blood that is splashed on the people is described as the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. It is the blood that has brought them into a covenant relationship with God himself. And so uh, God enters into a covenant relationship with the people through a sacrifice. Uh, That's how the people can see God. However, in this passage, I want you to notice that the covenant relationship with God is not established without a particular commitment on the part of the people to obey God's word. Uh, You might have noticed in in verse 4 that uh, Moses writes down uh, all the words that God had spoken in the Ten Commandments and the detailed laws. And in verse 7, he reads out uh, what is called the Book of the Covenant in the hearing of the people of Israel. And it is only when the people of Israel express their commitment to be obedient to God's word in this book that they are then sprinkled with blood so as to enter into this covenant relationship with God. And so seeing God and enjoying fellowship with God uh, also involves commitment to obeying God's word in a book. Now, friends, uh, we've seen that the people of Israel are able to see God and eat and drink in his presence. Uh, even if uh, it's in a very partial sense here in the book of Exodus, and that that has only come about because of the covenant relationship that God enters into with them. But what does this all mean for you and me? Is it possible for us to see God and to share in fellowship with God in the way that Moses and his entourage does here? Well, friends, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we read the astonishing claim that some had seen the living God once again and lived to tell the tale. In particular, you can see the apostles claiming that in the resurrected Jesus, they saw the Lord of the universe with their very own eyes. Uh, in our New Testament reading this morning, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, uh, these breathtaking words which we heard earlier. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. You see what John is saying here? He's saying that in Jesus, who died and rose again from the dead, he and the other apostles have seen the one who was there from before the beginning of the world. Notice he's not saying that they have seen God the Father, who is invisible and has no form. Rather, he is saying that they have seen God the Son, who has always been with the Father and is God himself and so is able to reveal the Father to us. I mean, this is mind-boggling, isn't it? The idea that they have seen God with their very own eyes. And yet the remarkable thing is that they lived to tell the tale. In fact, they didn't just live physically after seeing Jesus. But the claim here is that they received from him eternal life, real life. How is it that unholy and unrighteous sinners can see God and receive not eternal condemnation, but eternal fellowship and eternal life with God? Well, it's not because God enters a covenant with them through the sacrifice of an animal. For you see, the blood of animals can never really atone for sin. And so the sacrifices in the Old Testament were just pointers to a greater, uh, much more important reality that was to come. But in Jesus, God himself comes to earth in human flesh and gives himself as a sacrifice to atone for sin. You see, when Jesus died on that old Roman cross just outside of Jerusalem, he was providing the ultimate sacrifice that removes sin and averts God's wrath from the sinner so that through this blood of a new covenant, a person can truly be in fellowship with God. And further, this Jesus is not only the one who died but he is the one who rose again from the dead as the Lord of the universe who will one day judge the world. And so to not see Jesus now as the Lord of your life will mean condemnation for all eternity. But to see Jesus as your Lord and master now and to receive him as the Lord and master of your life, is to receive eternal life. Have you seen Jesus like this? Have you received him like this in your life? Now, friends, uh, clearly we don't see Jesus in the flesh now like the apostles did. And so how is it that we can see Jesus clearly as uh, the Lord? Well, what the Apostle John says is that we can only see Jesus clearly in this way through the testimony of the Apostles, which for us comes in a book called the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament is the Apostles' testimony to the fact that Jesus is Lord, which shows us what it means to live with him uh, as the Lord and Master of our lives. And so, friends, if you want to see Jesus clearly in your life, you cannot bypass getting to know this book well in your life. That's why in our passage uh, in the New Testament this morning, uh, the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that it is so important to have fellowship with us, meaning the Apostles, That is, you cannot expect to have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son unless you have fellowship with the apostles through their testimony in the Bible. You simply cannot see Jesus clearly unless you see what they have to say about him. For no one knew Jesus better on earth, and no one will ever know Jesus better than the spirit inspired apostles. Of the Lord Jesus Himself. Uh, That's why uh, I get quite concerned when Christians say they love Jesus, but show very little desire to get to know their Bibles better. Uh, Some Christian people seem content with hearing a sermon on a Sunday, and little more than that. Uh, Life is organized in such a way that getting to know Jesus through this book is given very little priority if that is you, then can I suggest that there is probably something very wrong with your relationship with God. It doesn't matter how much you serve at church. It doesn't matter how much assumed knowledge you think you have built up from the past. If you are presently not committed uh, to knowing more about Jesus through this book, My guess is that you are not seeing Jesus clearly and not following him in the way that he wants to be followed. And so please make sure you find ways of getting to know this book better. Of course, it's not simply knowing lots of information about the Bible that means a person sees Jesus clearly, is it? I mean, you can be a non-Christian person who has not received eternal life and read the Bible and know certain things about the Bible. But it is the one who reads this book and who encounters the risen Lord Jesus in such a way that they put their trust in him and live for him as the Lord and master of their lives. It is that person who sees Jesus clearly and has fellowship with him. Uh, You might have seen this image uh, before, Uh, what do you see in this image? Uh, You might see a young woman. Or uh, you might also see an old woman, if you look carefully. They are both there. But it is possible to see one thing and miss the other thing, isn't it? And I want to suggest that the same is true with the Bible. You can read the Bible and see Jesus as nothing but a good person uh, who teaches good morals. Or you can see Jesus simply as an interesting person who tickles your intellect. Or you can see Jesus simply as a kind person who um, is always there to get you through the difficulties of life. But the one who sees Jesus clearly is the one who sees him as the Lord of their lives and says, I'm willing to give my whole life to you, to serve you as my Lord. It is those who see Jesus in this way who are the ones who have fellowship with God now and for all eternity. Now, what is it that you see in Jesus whenever you open this book? Do you see the Lord who rules your life? Well, finally, friends, uh, for those who see Jesus as the Lord of their lives, uh, the promise of God is that one day you will see him in a far more glorious way than you do now. For one day you will eat and drink with him in heaven where you will finally see him face to face. Again, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, which is the, the very last book of the Bible, describes heaven itself as a great wedding feast. On that day, Jesus, who is the groom and the church, who is the bride, will be united forever. On that day, if you belong to Jesus, you will eat the richest food and drink the choicest wine as you feast in the presence of Jesus himself, who will fill you and give you joy and satisfy every longing in your heart for all eternity. The Apostle John says in Revelation 19, verse 9, these wonderful words. He says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God Himself. You see, friends, if you and I belong to Jesus, one day we will see Him. One day we will eat. And we will drink and we will feast in his presence and enjoy fellowship with him and enjoy all good things in him forever. And what a wonderful day that will be. Are you someone who longs for this day? Do you hope for this day in the midst of all the difficulties of life now? Do you live your life in a way that is shaped by this day? when you will finally see your Lord and Saviour face to face. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, what an awesome thing it is to be able to see Jesus, who was with you from before the creation of the world, and find in him eternal life. And Father, we thank you for his sacrifice that has atoned for our sin and his blood that has brought us into fellowship with you. And Father, we thank you for that wonderful promise that despite the groanings of this present life, we will one day see him face to face and enjoy being in his presence forever. And Father, we thank you that you have not left us without testimony, but in the scriptures you show us by your spirit that Jesus is Lord. Uh, Forgive us for the times when we have neglected uh, to search the scriptures for ourselves, to know Jesus better. Help us to be the people who are committed to knowing Jesus through this book, on our own, in groups, uh, in our Sunday gatherings, so that we might see him clearly and enjoy fellowship with him in our lives in ways that bring you glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.